Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Hey, it's another edition of Life, Death, and the Law. I'm attorney Adam Hanson, and I'm in the studio today with Sean Gardner, my partner in crime here at the law firm. We've got Cody Beeson running the boards and pushing buttons and stuff. What we're going to talk about today is a lot of different things. Sean has um, a concept that he wants to kind of flesh out, and that has to do with government intervention and how we as individuals can really be more successful the less the government is in our lives. And I know that sounds anti what's going on right now because the government is involved in our lives to such a fine extent that they are dictating to us how we should rear our children and how we should educate our children and things like that. So we're going to get into that. But before we do, I know, Cody, you're a big iPhone user, right? Right. And recently, a couple of weeks ago, the new iPhone 15 came out. Did you run down to the store to get that? No, not at all. Why? Because I I don't even I don't get the new iPhone. I don't like I, same reason I didn't like get the vaccine when it came out. Like I don't want to be the first one. I want to wait for a generation or two and see how it works. But this is the iPhone 15. It's been 15 generations. There's always bugs. There's always, do, haven't you heard that people are like oh I updated my iOS and now it's a brick. Yeah, like, no, that I happens. I, I thought iOS users were such that they say oh it just works. It does, and you give up on life, you give up on technology and trying to figure things out and drivers, but I still don't want to be the first adopter. What's really interesting about the new iPhone is that it comes now with a new charging port. If you're not aware of this, you haven't been keeping track of this, iPhone is notorious for their proprietary charging port. They use the lightning for the last, what, I think 15 years or something, they use this lightning port. They're the only ones in the world that use that. I mean, no other manufacturers of electronics use that particular port. And what's happened over the last 15 years is it's become very antiquated. So now we're on USB-C type transfer rates, which are hundreds of gigabytes per second, whereas the lightning port is way back in the dark ages as as it relates to technology. And so it wasn't because Apple wanted to do this. They actually got sued in the European Union and were forced to do this. And then they made it sound like, oh, this new thing, like USB-C charging points, they're ports are the new thing for the new iPhone 15. And uh, here you go. You guys should um, fall at our feet and worship us because we are are giving you this beautiful technology. It's like, no, you're 15 years late to the party. It's Now you're like way late. And so the new iPhone 15, if you don't get the pro version of it, you're still, because the chip in those things, um, any anything less than the pro version will be still 15-year-old technology of transfer rates. You have to get the pro version to get the actual upgraded chip that will give you the current transfer rates that a normal phone would if you don't have an Apple phone. But I'm not bashing on Apple. My family is all into Apple. I'm not I'm not a big fan of it, but I do it because my wife really likes it. See, it's just easier in life. Everything is connected and just easy. I take issue with that. I don't think it for me it's not. It does not for me an Apple device does not do everything that I would like it to do unfortunately, but I do it because I love my wife and that's the sacrifices I make. Okay. If you're listening to this, that's the sacrifice I'm going to make. But Sean, you talk about government intervention and, and with, and and getting into technology or getting into, um, our materials and, and the things that we use day to day. You, before you were telling me about this book that you read years ago called abundance. And in that it tells a story about aluminum or, for our British across the, the the pond, aluminium. I just like to say that word. Right. Yeah. So th- th- there's a very interesting 
history behind aluminum, and I'm going to give you a, just a brief overview of it. So originally it was introduced, at least historically that we know of, um, back in about 25 AD to the emperor of Rome, and he was being, used to being served on gold plates. Well, he had a goldsmith come up to him and offer him a plate that was of this very light, shiny material, kind of looked like uh, silver, not quite as bright as silver. And uh, he handed him this plate, and the emperor was pretty impressed. He wanted to know what it was all about. And so Caesar says, where did you get this? And he said, I made this. This metal actually came from common clay. And the extraction, the way I was able to do it, is known only to me and the gods. And the emperor, you know, he was a warmonger, and uh, he was... He knew about finances, he knew how to control societies, and he knew that if this metal were to get out and be available to the masses, then it would compete with other precious metals like gold and silver, which he had amassed through conquering most of Europe. So what did he do? He beheaded the goldsmith. And that basically put a cap on um, the access to aluminum for nearly two millennium. Then, later on, in uh, about the 1880s, an American and uh, French scientist came out with a process called electrolysis. Well, okay, let me step back one moment. In the early 1800s, okay, so 19th century, Napoleon, at the height of his power, he wanted to uh, present a banquet for the King of Siam. And as an honor to his guest, he served the king of Siam the, the dinner on a plate of aluminum. And everybody else had to settle for common gold utensils, you know, because they weren't as important. And so that's how valuable aluminum was considered, is this very light, pliable metal, and it was hard to come by. And it's all contextual, what is valuable and what's not, right? Why are diamonds so valuable? Not only because they're hard and pretty, but because they're hard to come by. We could make them right now yeah. carbon yeah yeah you take carbon you heat it up and uh, you can make diamonds that are essentially perfect without inclusions and the color is perfect and the cut is perfect and everything would compete to the best diamonds that you'd find in nature in fact better and uh, but they're not very valuable because they're man-made anyway getting back to aluminum in um, about the 1880s uh, French and American inventors came up with the process of electrolysis, which they were able to extract aluminum very quickly, very successfully, out of bauxite, which is this clay that contains this aluminum. It's very, very plentiful. And now we use aluminum as a throwaway article, right? We wrap our dinner, our leftover dinner in it. We make swans out of it at restaurants, and then we chuck it in the garbage when we're done. Can you imagine wrapping your dinner in gold? Right. And, and chucking it in the garbage when you're done, or like drinking sodas out of a gold can. And that's essentially the power of intervention. That's the power of the people being able to think and react and create on their own. But when governments get involved, like Caesar did in 25 AD, then the inventors get beheaded and the concentration of power maintains the status quo. So w what does that have to do with today? Fine, we're wrapping our dinners in aluminum, big deal. Um, what it has to do with today is there are other things that are, are in scarce supply, 
that the government is still using to control the population? Can you think of a few? All sorts of stuff. Are you talking about materials? Are you talking about health? What are you talking about? Oh, it could be internet speeds. It could be all kinds of stuff. Yeah, internet speeds, yeah. You guys are all idiots. Gasoline prices. I'm I'm talking about... (laughs) Like I said, listen, one of my my pet peeves is a person asking a question that they already know the answer to, and they're looking for one finite answer. I know the answer to it. And And they make you feel like an idiot because if you're dancing around that answer, you're an idiot. All it has to be my exact answer. All of our Your exact answer is wild. Nobody's going to ever think of that. All of our listeners are sitting on this going like, why can't these guys come up with it? It is energy. Ah, uh, okay. I was going to say that. Yeah. It's energy, right? We got to control energy. You have to produce energy this way, not that way. You can't use something that is really cheap and, and is, you know, this black goopy stuff in the ground because it's too easy. Right? It's too plentiful. So we're going to make up some big scenario, this doomsday scenario that says if you keep using that cheap black stuff to provide energy and be successful on your own and not allow us to control your policies or control general public policy, then it's going to be bad and the world is going to end and everybody's going to die. So you got to do it our way. you got to do it through solar panels. you got to do it through windmills that are so large that individual people can't make and solar panels that come through rare earth materials that you can't possibly harvest and and construct yourself. And so we will tell you what's good and what's bad. And that way you don't innovate on your own. You don't become independent and we maintain our standard of power. And that has been the standard for governments throughout history. And that's the whole point of the the story of aluminum. So in the 1960s, um, it was largely put out among the public, that there was a population growth that that was out of control. And the Earth's resources would not be able to sustain it. And um, Dr. Martin Luther King is actually famous for pointing out that unlike the plagues of the Dark Ages and uh, contemporary diseases, which we do not understand the cure for, this modern plague of overpopulation, I'm reading this quote, is soluble by means that we have discovered and we have the resources to possess and possess them. What are those resources? Sterilization. Keep people from procreating. And uh, China actually adopted that and, and made that a rule, right? The, the one-child rule. And what did that lead to? Did it lead to people living longer, happy, healthy lives? No, it led to mass infanticide. It led to huge government corruption where only the elite were allowed to have large families and prosper and the others were had forced abortion upon them so and 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 what i was actually a little bit uh surprised to find out that it was only imposed on about 30 percent of the population really the poor and impoverished and underrepresented population this was in china this is in china oh i didn't know that i was thought i thought it was a blanket no, everybody. Yeah. And so, and that the concept was, you know, there's going to be too many people to feed. Well, in reality, that prediction that the earth would run out of resources, it was going to happen within the next 30 years. That prediction was made in the 60s. Um, we have tripled the population since that time, and we have nowhere near run out of resources. But it's still, it's still being held as an argument that we're going to continue, we're going to run out of resources, especially if the rest of the world 
were to live at the same type of standard as people in America or even Europeans. So um, apparently people in America use five times the amount of resources that are sustainable over the long term. And people in Europe use three times the amount of resources that are sustainable. However, we continue to find out that resources we can make more plentiful. The resources we were supposedly going to run out of was food and clean water. But we've developed technologies that have allowed us to produce thousand times more food than previously known about. And we've been able to purify water, whereas the water that goes down back into the stream from our water treatment plants is cleaner than the water that we pulled out of the stream. And it's much cleaner than the water that was flowing in the stream in the 70s. So innovation solves much of these issues. And these doomsday predictionists, they become so popular because people are driven to react out of fear. And positive news doesn't sell. So what we need to do is actually think for ourselves again and understand, is there ulterior motive out there for the government or for the the intellectual elites? And should we allow them to control our ability to innovate and, more importantly, to have families and and have the freedom to create life and and be happy individuals? We have to go to a break, and uh, I want you to think about this when we come back. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? That is the question that we're going to pose as we come back. We'll be right back. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hansen, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and Law. I'm attorney Adam Hansen, and I'm with uh, Sean Garner, my partner here in crime. And uh, before the break, I posed the question, and maybe you're familiar with this question because it has become this uh, social contagion to ask of, of particularly husbands. My wife, a couple weeks ago, she, I came in, I was working outside, and I came in the door, and, and she said, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And I paused for a second, and I, and I, I thought to myself, I don't know, probably like once or twice a week. And so I said that, and she just started dying laughing. And uh, I was like, what's so funny about that? She's like, I, I just thought that was a really surprising answer. And she goes on to tell me about this social, uh, this social media uh, reel that's been going around where wives will randomly ask their husbands, how often do they think of the Roman Empire? And surprisingly, most husbands are saying around like all the time or once a day or twice a week, like a, a surprisingly high 
frequency of thinking of the Roman Empire. And wives, on the other hand, say something like, never. I never think of the Roman Empire. Like, it never crosses my mind. And Sean, we were talking before, like, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think males tend to think of the Roman Empire more so than their counterparts? Well, and you asked me the question before we started the show. Sean, how often do you think of the Roman Empire? And I was like, all the time. And you're like, seriously? And I go, yeah, I do. And, and you started laughing. I, I know. Because I, just th- I think it's funny that you and I aligned like that. And why do you think that is? Why do you think, we, why do you think it occupies a space in our busy, busy minds, you know, here in 2023? Why are we thinking back to the Roman Empire? I, I think it's because, well, number one, I mean, the Roman Empire, to me, had a lot to do with the life of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and things like that. I mean, that's why it's always kind of pressing on my my mind is as I read and, and study on a daily basis in the Bible or the New Testament, I'm constantly thinking of the Roman Empire because they were the ones that crucified the Savior. And so that it brings it to mind constantly if you're thinking it from that context, but more particularly, you know, the the battle between the Jewish Sanhedrin or the powers that be in the Jewish religion at the time and the Roman Empire and that interplay between Caesar and the the local Pontius Pilate uh, governor there in the region. So the Roman Empire, I mean, it occupies a space in my mind at least once or twice, uh, at least a week because of the, that context, but also because I think the Roman Empire was the last real empire that the power was seated with the people. To a certain extent, and I asked you, Sean, before the show, um, why did the Roman Empire fall, and what was your answer to that? The Roman Empire fell. Be- well, first of all, I think that it ascended to greatness because of its republic, because it allowed people to contribute to the government and um, elect representatives that would re- represent their interests, and that's where. You know, our founding fathers got a lot of the philosophy that went into the drafting of the Constitution, and that's why we are a constitutional republic. We're not a democracy. And um, what happened was what happens with most civilizations. People aspire to power. They gain popularity. um, They gain control over the military, and then they concentrate that power into a smaller and smaller group of individuals until the population at large is no longer contributing to the running of the government and the ideas are refined to just the few people that are running the government and so the majority of the good ideas are left out and other societies that allow those ideas to come to the forefront they're going to progress they're going to innovate and they are going to conquer the societies that fall into the still um, inflexible rigid society As you're talking, it brings to mind uh, what happened with our founders. When Jefferson took office um, after George Washington, one of the first things he did was he changed the the rules or the law that the vice president is no longer your opponent. It's the person you pick for your your running mate. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a real travesty for our nation. I would have liked to have seen, for example, if it would have been Biden and Trump they would have had to be together as a president and a vice president. Uh-huh. And I think that that constant bouncing of opposing ideas in a lot of contexts, it, it's better for all of us. 
because you're not just hearing an echo chamber of people around you, the people you surround yourself, because that's what it is now. And it's been ever since Jefferson that I'm going to surround myself with a cabinet of individuals that I share all my ideas with, like-minded ideas, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You want like-minded people around you, but it's also good to surround yourself with opposing ideas, yeah. and you have to deal with that. Well, you wouldn't be picking an 80-year-old guy if you had somebody on the opposite side in the number two position. Right. Well, but the population was. So his point is he'd, he'd have to stick with Joe Biden just because that was the Constitution. And, uh, you know, if you, you think Trump got impeached a lot uh, during his regular term, I think... Oh, that would be, <laughs> think, be interesting. But I, I, I'm, I'm making that point because when you concentrate power in an echo chamber, and we're seeing this in California, to be honest, right? We're seeing this in California where... There, it is all one party ruled from Congress to the cities and the travesty that has happened to California. We are seeing that in real time as populations, uh, the population of California has been migrating out of like a mass exodus out of California to Arizona, to Utah, to Idaho, to all these neighboring states that are more um, welcoming of their ideas and the American dream, I would say. Um, California has become more um, anti-business, has become more anti, uh, I don't want to say anti-crime, it's the opposite of that. It's pro-crime and uh, pro-no-cash um, bail kind of th stuff, which has created a series of issues. And uh, that happens when you have one party ruling it all, and the power is, is all controlled by one party. This this uh, multi-party system that we have in our in our democracy is good to flesh out alternative ideas and to represent the population as a whole. And when we have it all concentrated, is what I hear you to say, Sean, happened in, in the Roman Empire. Once you concentrate that power to a certain amount of select individuals that are operating in a vacuum, um, not among the people, then the people lose their power or their voice to actually implement change or to maintain the status quo or adhere to principles that the actual populace wants to promulgate. And um, I, I can see that happening now. And um, Vivek Ramaswamy often talks about this as, as a running candidate for the Republican Party nominee uh, for president in 2024. He often will bring up the idea as one of his talking points that if he is elected, he he plans to eliminate most of the government agencies that we currently have. We're talking like the CIA, the FBI. Not so much what I understand him to say, I'm not going to speak for him, but what I understand him to say is, because he's actually fleshed that out, he says, yeah, we will be eliminating agencies, but consolidating them too. So it's not like we're going to not have individuals that are making sure that we are protected that work in the CIA currently or the FBI or the IRS, but we can consolidate a lot of these agencies and pare down the amount of individuals that are actually working in those agencies. And the left take that to mean like, oh my gosh, the whole government is going to collapse. Well, that's not actually a bad thing. Agencies are not, and we've talked about this on the program before, agencies are not uh, diplomatic in any sense of the word. We did not elect those agency directors. We did not uh, vote for them. We have no say in who is appointed in the cabinet of the president's uh, executive branch. That is up to the president alone, and we, we get to elect the president, but 
we don't get to choose who he chooses or she chooses for uh, their cabinet members or the, the, the heads of these agencies. Oftentimes people will call them czars, but they're really the directors of agencies and they have to be confirmed by both the House and the Senate. And uh, once that's done, then now they're operating. So a good example of this would be uh, Mayorkas, who's in charge of the uh, border. Homeland Security? Homeland Security, yes, and uh, Border border Patrol. And, uh, and so right now he's on the hot seat for what's happening at the border. And so what's the remedy there? Well, we as a people can't do anything about it. We can, well, we can when the next election cycle comes. Every four years we can say, well, we don't like that Biden appointed Mayorkas. Well, we've got to wait till the election, number one. Number two, uh, the person that you, you vote for, you have to hope that, okay, they're going to get rid of Mayorkas or they're going to replace him with somebody else that might be in line with what you think needs to happen at the border. There's a lot of ifs in there, and it's not very fun because most of the time your person or people that share your ideals uh, might not get in. And when that happens, now you have issues with the populace because now they be, there's a great angst among the whole population where we can't really do anything. We, our hands are tied. We have to rely on our, our congressmen and our senators to actually push those issues. And um, we're seeing that now as they're bringing impeachment articles against um, Mayorkas, against um, the attorney general, uh, Merrick Garland. Yes. He was a nominee under the Obama administration for Supreme... I think he has an axe to grind, to be honest. I don't know if you guys remember the history there. Yeah, He was going to be the next Supreme Court justice. But because of the timing of all that, so Obama appointed him, but because Trump was elected, the Congress and the Senate, they delayed actually putting him in. So he was going to be on the Supreme Court. Like he was, he, had, he was already done. He was nominated. He was, uh, but they they slowed down the confirmation on that, such that it ran into the Trump presidency and, and the Trump administration said, "We're not going to put this guy on the bench." And so there goes Merrick Garland. There goes his chance to be a Supreme Court justice. And I I really feel like, and maybe I don't, you say rightfully so, maybe not, but um, obviously he has an axe to grind. I mean, he is mad that he was not a Supreme Court justice. And it's because of the Republicans. And say what you want, you know, oh, you know, he's, and he will. And he's testifying, when he's testifying in front of Congress, he's constantly saying, I mean, my job is to be neutral. I'm not political. This is not a political arm. Mm -hmm. Well, then why are you prosecuting Republicans and you're not prosecuting Democrats? Why are you constantly in the lives and the personal dealings of people that are registered as Republicans, but not in the lives of Democrats. So it doesn't look good for Merrick Garland. It looks like he has an ax to grind, and man, he's going at it. He's using uh, an agency of the federal government to attack our own citizens and to prosecute them or persecute them, if you want to say it that way. So these agencies are dangerous. And when you concentrate power in, their, in them, now we as a people have no voice. Or our voice is very, very strained and, and limited. And it becomes frustrating. What happens when, the pers- when a person feels like they, they are limited, their voice is suppressed? What, what, what's going to happen? They start screaming, which is reflected in January 6th. And, and Cody, you have different opinions about January 6th than I do, but I think that's what happened is, is when you have a people... Do you have different well, No, I mean, I think, I think everybody is bad there. I mean, yeah, you should, you should get a, a ticket from your congressman if you want to go see this Capitol. You know, you don't, I you tried, don't, I tried to do that and they didn't give it to me. So 
what happens when a people is a person's voice is suppressed such that they feel like they don't have a voice? They tend to scream, and they make a they make a ruckus or they try to get attention. And and Vivek goes one step beyond that. He says when you can't scream when they're when even you're screaming and you're protesting and they're not listening to your voice, then you burn things down. And um, that I think is what his explanation of what occurred at the Capitol. Of course, it was on a hugely smaller scale than what happened with all the riots that took place during George Floyd when, when he was killed. And, um, but there was not a big outcry of an insurrection going on at that point. And yet today still, when, it, when I tune into CNN or mo- most of the mainstream media, um, I hear that anything that's going on with um, individuals that support Trump are continuing this um, this mindset that that there's an insurrection that needs to take place because we want to move Democrats out of power and Republicans into power or anybody else into power. Um, Vivek he doesn't like to talk about terms of parties, Republican. Democrat. He says, we're Americans. We need to move forward. We need to collect all good ideas and move forward with them. And what's going on is they keep saying, well, if you support Trump or any of his policies, then you support his insurrection um, agenda that, that was in place when he was legitimately voted out of office in 2020. We got to go to break. This is Life, Death, and Law. We'll be back after this. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit YumaEstatePlanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. We're talking about everything from uh, Roman society and how often men think about it compared to women. I wonder what they fill their thoughts with then when they're not thinking of Rome. Because, I mean, I think of Rome every time I'm not thinking of food. Instagram. It's pretty simple. Oh, okay. So um, this book that I'm reading right now, I, I, I read it originally in 2011 when it came out. The book is called, and it's, it's one of these books you've got to read, it's called Abundance. The future is better than you think. And how often do we get something like that? The future, you know, we're all going to... Um, die in boiling seas and, and the earth, all of its resources are going to be used up. And in this book, it says, no, actually, innovation is happening faster 
than has ever happened before. And every time we innovate, we not only offset the amount of resources that are being were previously scarce, we are making them so much more abundant that we are gaining more and more free time. Right now, do you know that 20% of Americans live off of government subsidies? 20% of Americans do not have jobs and contribute to society. On I w- any given honestly, day. I thought that would be a larger percentage. Yeah, but, but the, that's 20% of people that are actually working age and capable of contributing to society. They're just sitting at home getting paid not to do anything. So that's removed all the disability numbers and all the yes. retirement numbers and all that stuff. Yes, these are people that are receiving unemployment and so on and so forth. These are unemployable people that could go out and contribute, but they're not because the government thinks it's better to pay them to stay home. And I, I get it that some people lose their job and have tough periods in between jobs, and there's unemployment insurance. But the, the extension that that has gone through time and time again, especially with this COVID emergency packet that went out, I've seen more $100,000 boats on the river in the past three years than I did in the 10 years prior to that in boating on the river. And it seems like everybody's got this $100,000 boat. Where, where are these $100,000 boats go? At first, when I first started boating, I'm, we you know saved up money, and we pulled together $3,500, and we got a boat. And we thought, we have made it. We've got this boat. And it would start sometimes and sometimes not, but we had a boat. It was awesome, and we saved a lot of money, and, and that was something. We, we pulled it with our minivan. We didn't go out and buy this $50,000 truck to pull it, and we were super happy and content that we got this boat. And now, I mean, I think it would be laughed off the dock if I showed up pulling my, my $3,500 boat with a minivan. And why is that? Is it the, the economy has been flooded with all this cash, and there's got to be some end to it, right? That's there's, exactly. I, you got to pay the piper at some point. I agree with that. I mean, I often ask that to like my wife and other people around me. Is we've seen so much cash. There's a point where that cash is going to run out. Then what happens? Right. You know, I don't know. I didn't live through the Carter administration, but that was an example of hyperinflation. Right. And I, I know my dad talks about lining up, depending on. I think it was your last name. Uh, the letter of your last name, you were allowed to go to the gas pump that week on a certain day and fill up, and there were just lines. At the ga- so I, I wonder if that's what we're going to go back to. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen and when all honestly, this cash runs out. There are a lot of people in the Biden administration that say that was a good thing, and it would be a good thing to happen again. We need people to actually cut back on the use of the resources, and to do that, we need to create more scarcity. And those people need to be put off on their own island and just experience scarcity for their own because they're the people that are being chauffeured around in these bulletproof SUVs, and um, they have no idea what it's like to live with scarcity without being able to pay for gas to get to where you need to go, without being able to pay for groceries, without pulling out the credit card and putting it in on credit. That They have no idea, but they think for the rest of the world – that's a good thing. Um, something that I wanted to get to in general is that individuals, and it seems like every day the biggest talking point in the media is climate change and how we have to do everything possible to reverse 
global warming. Otherwise, we're all going to die. Just like in the dire predictions in the 60s that if we didn't somehow reverse the cooling of the earth, we were all going to die because of the ice age that was coming. And uh, these predictions have never come true, yet they, they don't have any less impact on the general population to create this fear and, and um, this, this mentality that, yes, we've got, to, we've got to allow these government agencies to control our policy and do whatever they say, otherwise we're all going to die. Here's, here's one interesting fact. Well, um, two. One is that wealthy people create clean climates. If you look at what our rivers are like today in the United States, what the air quality is like today in the United States compared to the 60s and 70s, it is so much better. Because when you become wealthy, you develop the technologies and you have the resources to actually care for the environment. If you don't have wealth, then you you are looking at the needs pyramid. You're looking at just survival, and you throw your trash in the backyard until you can actually have sanitation and pay for the trash service to pick it up and take it to the dump. You throw garbage in the river. You don't sanitize the water that goes back into the river that we're using. And so when you're wealthy, the, the earth is actually much better off. And so if we really cared about the earth, if we really cared about the environment, what would we would be doing is helping these countries that don't have the type of wealth, that don't have the type of innovation and um, the, the technology that we enjoy here in the United States, we'd be allowing them to come up to that standard so they could take care of their environment. So they're not, not chopping down trees to cook their dinner, and it's um, the standard statistic is that an average woman in a house that is cooking over a fire stove is inhaling the amount of smoke that would be the equivalent of smoking two packs a day. You're not going to have the World Health Organization saying it's good to smoke two packs a day as long as we're not contributing to global warming. No. Let's get them off of burning wood and something that is a thousand times more efficient by using electricity generated from whether it's hydroelectric or nuclear or whether it's um, even burning coal. That is so much more efficient than burning fire. And another thing that is that I wanted to bring up was the poverty line. So in the United States, we say, okay, the poverty line we have to keep ratcheting up because, and, and the minimum wage we have to keep ratcheting up because it's humane. We can't allow people to make a wage that they can't support a family on. And so we've got a minimum wage for entry-level workers that they're supposed to be able to support a family on, and that was never, that's never the intent of entry-level workers. The intent of entry-level workers is for young people that don't have any skill set to come into a job and earn less, something that an employer can afford to pay them, so they can obtain a skill set, so they can learn, they can be an apprentice of types. Well, at some point, you realize the value of your time, and you, you find something else that, that equals that. Yeah. So what, what has happened? Right now, the um, minimum wage is just a hair under $15 an hour. It's like fourteen twenty five. Maybe, Cody, you'd be my fact checker on that. I don't know what the minimum wage is. It's like $14 an hour and going up. And so what do we do? We employ less people to run our files around. We find ways to 
digitized. Oh, it's thirteen eighty-five. So it's just, in Arizona, yeah. In in Arizona, it's thirteen dollars and eighty-five cents an hour is our minimum wage, and so we find ways to digitize all of our files instead of having a runner get our files. And instead of having somebody take files to other firms and do all of our errands, we find a way to digitize it and send it out. Now, okay, for us, that's better because we can get things done quicker. But for people that wanted to get experience working around professionals and in uh, and earn some money for themselves, they're not going to have a job anymore. And a law was just passed just recently. I think it was two days ago. Uh, it's probably about a week now that it was the the Pregnant Person Protection Act. The Pregnant Person Protection Act creates another protected area of individuals where if you hire them, you have to treat them specially. You have to give you have to give them extra time for bathroom breaks. You have to give them an extra locked room. So uh, if they are nursing or if they are pumping, that they can have privacy to do that. All those things I think are decent things to do. But when the government gets involved and mandates it, and if a pregnant person comes in and, and is hired and then is subsequently fired, they can bring a lawsuit against that business. So what are the business people going to do? Not hire them. That's easy. Right. And it, the, the same thing happened when George Bush Sr. signed into law the American with Disabilities Act. You look at the line, the trend, less people with disabilities got hired because people were scared of being sued when they hired people for regular reasons and didn't care about their disabilities, one of those individuals to um, participate and, and be productive in their organizations. They're now scared of being sued by them, so they don't hire them. So now less disabled people were hired, and we look at those trends They're facts, they're black and white, and we learn nothing from them. And so we create more and more acts and protected groups of individuals that make employers like you and I, Adam, less likely to hire those individuals because we're scared that we're going to get sued if they don't perform. It has nothing to do with their protected status. It just has to do with their ability to do the job. And uh, we either downsize or, or let them go for whatever reason, and now we're getting sued for it. So what do we do? And we avoid that risk in the first place. Nobody likes drama, and that sounds like a lot of drama to me. So as an employer, you, you're always, we are constantly in this battle where we're looking for good candidates that will do a great job at our work uh, place and where we feel like, okay, we're comfortable paying them a good wage because we're getting a good return on our investment in that person. Usually when we hire an individual, it's out of our pocket. We have to come out of pocket quite a bit for the training and for all the effort that we're putting into that individual coming into the, uh, into the office. And, and the liability that we take because we have sensitive information that we've got to take a lot of safeguards to make sure that our client's information is protected. So we're very cognizant of the idea that this person we're not just going to hire somebody off the street. And we have people come in sometimes, you know, uh, in like, I don't know, attire that they look like they're going to go play basketball in or they're going to go for a run in. And in our office, that's not what we would probably wear, right? I'm not going to come to work and meet with clients. They expect uh, a certain amount of professionalism from me and, and rightfully so. And so when we come to work, we come in, in business attire 
And we would expect a candidate that wants to work here probably to come in that attire. Is it the end of the world? No. If they have tons of credentials or they have a good excuse, well, I was running late. I had to run my kids here and there or whatever. I just didn't have time to change. But if there isn't, isn't a good excuse, then you're probably not going to get the job here because we already are reluctant to hire people because of the issues that you brought up. Because of all the government regulations that we're scared of, we do not, we, we go into this kind of like a person goes into marriage with a prenup. You, you go into it thinking that we're going to break up at some point. And so we need to make sure that this yeah. is really going to work. And uh, if it doesn't, then we're going to end up on top, not you. And that, that's kind of how we go into the employment field. You know, when we're looking for candidates is we're, we're looking for really great candidates that are not going to be drama. So th- there are two other aspects about this law that make it even less likely that now individuals who are pregnant um, are going to experience more protection in the workforce and instead be looked at as somebody that's uh, a liability to hire. A pariah. <laughs> so and, and it's unfair because we love families. And I think that women in general are extremely productive. I think there's, in our workforce here, we have 90% women employees. And because they work extremely well and contribute to our law firm, and and it's fantastic. But with these new laws that come out, it makes us more and more liable for everything that we do. One other aspect of the law is it only applies to employers who have 15 or more employees. So we have, we're just on the cusp of that. We have right now, we hover between 13 and 14 employees. And we've looked at that. We've looked at expanding and we've looked at um, opening another office in another city. And the government regulations that we'd be under to do that, to create more employment opportunities for other people, to offer good services that individuals need to avoid court, to avoid the government and passing down their legacy to their family members or to charities, whoever they like, it's not going to happen because if we opened it up, number one, we'd be taxed at a higher rate, and number two, we'd be under higher restrictions for our employment standards. We've seen that in the past. Remember Obamacare? We've got to go, but uh, Obamacare was a good example of this. I know uh, a lot of businesses here in town, I think it used to be like 40 employees. If you're over 40 employees, then now you're subject to all of these regulations right. when it comes to um, health care providing and, and things like that in your company. To me, all these regulations you're talking about, it just tends to chill or stifle capitalism. We do not want to grow our business anymore, even though we're capable of doing that. And we want to do that because that's our goal. That's our, our drive. Our drive is to be successful and to do the very best that we can. It's human nature to want to continue to improve. And we feel like we're stifled by our own government because of these regulations. And that, that's, that's the opposite as yeah. to and, what it should and be. And these bureaucrats at the top see it and say, oh, okay, there's less organizations that have 40 employee, employees or, or more. And so they've lowered the standard to 15, thinking, well, we need to catch up with the times. No, what you did was you drove out all of those companies that would have had more than 40 employees because of your stupid regulations. And now you're going to do it for the smaller companies as well. And the irony of all this is that none of those individuals that are making those rules and forcing them upon business owners have ever owned a business or employed yeah. anybody. Yeah, I have any clue about what it takes to make something actually productive in society. On that positive note, we'll talk to you next time. This is Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen at 928 928- 
783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.